But I was familiar with Bob's persistence. I knew he was not about to hang up. I had to get up and answer the phone. I pulled a pair of sweatpants up over my nightshirt and opened the door between my quarters and the boat's wheelhouse. As the phone rang on, I squinted at the clock. Oh, for Christ's sakes, Bob, 4.30? I grabbed the receiver and said, Hi, Bob, as pleasantly as I could. Good morning, Linda. How did you know it was me? The voice, sharp and clear on the other end, was wide awake. Woman's intuition. I hope I didn't wake you. He lied. Oh, no, I've been up for hours, I said, trying to use sarcasm to mask my irritation. Well, he continued, today is sailing day, and I thought you might like some breakfast before the boys show up. I'll pick you up in 30 minutes. I hung up and finished the conversation to myself. Luckily for you, Bob Brown, the one and only thing in this universe that I will sacrifice sleep for is food. I nearly fell asleep in the shower. As the hot water pounded the back of my neck, I thought about my boss. Although Bob Brown had proven himself a difficult man, I liked him upon meeting him, and my feelings hadn't changed over the years. I often found myself defending him to the five men who comprised my crew, whose attitude towards Bob was comprised of equal parts of respect and repugnance. When somebody told me early on that I was working for the most hated man from Puerto Rico to Newfoundland, I laughed. But time had proven this to be true. No matter where I went, I would meet someone who knew Bob or had heard about him and who would inevitably ask, How can you work for that asshole? My answer seldom varied. He's not so bad. He's got the nicest boat in the fleet, the best equipment money can buy, and he treats me well. Bob was a smart man and couldn't possibly have been totally oblivious to the general fishing community's dislike of him, although it appeared that he was. He managed to take everything in stride, as if this ill will simply went with the territory. He was far too busy to waste time acknowledging any criticism. There will always be people who question extreme success, and with everything Bob touched turning to gold, there was a lot of talk. Some criticisms had merit. Some were cheap shots born of jealousy. Bob had obviously stepped on a few fingers on his way to the top, and although some said that he had also picked a few pockets, I had never seen any dishonesty in my experience with him. An amazingly clever person, his confidence covered a wide range. Among other things, Bob flew his own plane and was a top-notch mechanical and electrical troubleshooter. As for determination, he would take a boat to Mars if he thought there might be a fish to be caught there. Today, the name Bob Brown is recognized by millions of readers of The Perfect Storm as the owner of the Andrea Gale. My only real problem with Bob, I thought as I dried my hair with a towel, was that he demanded so much of people. He naively expected everyone he came into contact with to think and act on his level. I worked hard to live up to Bob's expectations and usually fell short. Bob's approval was something I strove for and seldom achieved, but it was one of the things that kept me going during my five years under his employ. As I tied my shoelaces, I concluded my thoughts on Bob Brown. Our relationship worked. The tide was half and rising, making it an easy step from the rail of the boat up onto the dock where Bob's truck was just easing to a stop. The man behind the wheel was of impressive stature. Bob was not tall by any means, but what he lacked in height was more than compensated for in width of shoulders and girth of chest. His was a body built for physical work, low to the ground and rugged. As I climbed into the truck, I made some smart-ass comment about the risk involved in riding with Bob Brown through the streets of Gloucester. What if I'm hit with a bullet intended for you? Bob laughed, shaking his short, neatly combed, not quite to the salt-and-pepper stage black hair. Stroking his clean-shaven chin with a hand that resembled a bear's paw, Bob thoughtfully offered, Perhaps you would prefer to walk. No, I feel lucky this morning. You're buying, right? I slammed the door and we made small talk as Bob drove to the restaurant. 
Sitting across the table from Bob, I started to get the first twinge of nervousness. It happened every trip, the day we were to leave the dock. I wondered what chore we had forgotten, what item I had neglected to put on my list, and how hard it would be to do without that particular item over the course of the thirty days at sea. I pulled my checklist from my back pocket and went over it for what seemed to be the one hundredth time since I brought the Hannah Bowden back into Gloucester two days ago. Preparing a boat for a month-long fishing trip involves so much work in such a high degree of organization that when the time comes to cast the lines off the dock, I have often breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that the most unpleasant part of the trip is over and the best yet to come, the actual catching of fish, the reason most of us are in the business. Intense anxiety stood between that sigh of relief and myself this morning. There were still tasks to be completed after breakfast, before the lines could be thrown from the dock, indicating the official start of our September trip. A waitress took our orders and filled our coffee cups. While we waited to be served, I fidgeted. I drummed the fingers of my...